Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. A joy-filled life, today is your day. And joy is for every single one of us. Grace and godliness go hand in hand. They're not opposed to one another. And there are people who twist the scriptures and twist the grace of God into a ticket to live away from the way God would have them live. And the book of Jude tells us that they are apostate. They tells us that that's twisting the very grace of God. Grace and godliness go hand in hand. The power for all the previous commands in Titus chapter 2 culminate. They come to this, which is the foundation of for all of those commandments, we see the very grace of God. It starts in verse 11. Again, turn your eyes there. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace has appeared. So here's what's so cool. We're going to connect the dots with grace and Jesus this morning. I want you to see how, Je- how Jesus and the grace of God are connected. Grace has always been on the scene. It's not like in the New Testament all of a sudden grace just popped up out of nowhere, that there had been no grace of God in the Old Testament. There certainly had been from the Garden of Eden forward. God's grace has always been present. Even in the Garden, there was grace on display. Even in the Covenant of Works, there was grace on display. We often think about the Garden of Eden and we think immediately about the restrictions. You cannot eat of this tree. But first, before you cannot eat of this tree, is the giving away of all the garden and all the earth to Adam and to Eve. Here, this is a garden of yes, it's a garden of gifts, it's a garden of the presence of God. And then came the covenant of works. You can't do this. But from the garden forward, we've seen the grace of God. But there's always been shadows attached to the grace of God in the Old Testament. There's always been promises attached to the grace of God in the Old Testament. It's always been on the scene, but it's always been a little blurry. When you end up seeing the grace of God in the face of Christ Jesus, the, the blur begins to clear up. You're able to see things clearly in 2020 vision that you used to not be able to see in 2020 vision. When Jesus came, he revealed so much about the grace of God. That's what's so glorious about the Bible. In unfolding revelation, when you begin to study the Bible and you read it backwards, you're able to understand everything in the way it's intended to be understood. The epistles help us understand the Gospels. The Gospels help us understand the Old Testament. And as God gave us more and more revelation, we get more and more clarity. And so Jesus came... And we see grace in clearer ways than anybody in the Old Testament ever saw grace. John chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 says this, For from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what we see in the incarnation, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and one day return of Jesus is the very grace of God. It's the grace of God on display. This is the magnum opus of God. This is the work. This is the masterpiece we see in Christ Jesus, the very glory of God. The grace of God has appeared because Jesus has come. And what did grace bring with it? So there's this connection here of grace and Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we see now that this is Jesus Christ who brings salvation. Grace is not this ethereal just word that we try to stumble upon and try to learn more about because we hear people talk about grace and, and loving God's grace and being changed by God's, God's grace, but grace has a name attached to it. Amen. Jesus. You cannot know about the grace of God if you don't know about 
Jesus, the Son of God. And once you understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it's like the grace of God, just, you, you just, you're looking through binoculars and it's all blurry, but then everything comes into focus. And you see the grace of God because you've seen Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done. Grace came, appeared, Jesus has come. And what did Jesus bring with him? Well, it tells us salvation. Look again at verse 11. Bringing salvation for all people. For all people. Now, I wanna, we're going to do some theological work here. Every time we get in the Bible, we're doing some theological work. The, the Theology is the study of God. And as you're looking into the scriptures, you're trying to understand God's word. Now, something that's so important about the Bible is that the Bible never contradicts itself. It never, never ever contradicts itself. There's not one. And if somebody comes along and says, look, the Bible contradicts itself here and here, you just have to know that that person doesn't know what they're talking about. The Bible complements itself. It helps interpret itself, but it never contradicts itself. The Bible's never against itself. It's always for each other. So the Holy Spirit is working the scriptures together. And as we study the Bible and we have a passage that we don't, we bump into and we don't really know, okay, how, how do I understand this? It's a little bit confusing. The clear verses always help us understand the unclear verses. False teachers always take unclear verses and they try to make the rest of the scriptures get in line with unclear verses. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses do. That's what Mormons do. That's what every false religion does. Is They take unclear verses and they magnify them and they say, look, this is what it's saying. And they twist the scriptures because they're unstable people. They want to get power and control. So we're going to do some work here because it says for all people. And at first glance, it seems like universalists have a point, and I want us to see this, and I want to see it clearly. A universalist comes up to you and says, hey, listen, because of Jesus, his death for all people everywhere, everybody's going to heaven, and I can prove it to you. I'm going to open up to Titus chapter 2 and look at verse 11, and it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And how many people have heard the conversation, all means all, and that's all all ever means? Anybody ever heard that before? Okay. And so the universalist says, look, everybody's going to be saved. Look what Jesus has done. He's brought salvation for all people. In one sense, universalists understand the atonement. They understand that the death of Jesus was substitutionary, that he substituted himself. And they say because he substituted himself for all people, everyone ever, if he substituted them, himself for them, therefore they are going to live. They won't die. They'll be in heaven. They will be saved. Because if Jesus died for them, why would they die? If he died for them, they're going to be saved. So universalists understand atonement, sort of. They rightly understand that if Jesus died in your place, then he actually paid the penalty of your sins. That's right. And therefore, if he paid the penalty of your sins, you will be saved. But is this a passage for universalism? Because you have to, you know, as you're thinking it through the Bible, you're thinking, but I know that the, the, the wide is the gate, narrow is the road, and I know that not everybody is saved. So is this passage saying that? And then somebody comes along and says, all means all, and that's all all ever means? Usually talking about general atonement. So what they fail to understand is the word all. Does all mean each and every? So every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived, that's ever breathed all across this world, even the Canaanites, even people that are in opposition to God right now, God-haters of the world, did Jesus die for everyone that they would be saved as well in the exact same way or not? 
So does it mean each and every, or does it mean that he died to save all types of people? And we're going to look at this and say that he did not die to save each and every person. If he did, if he did, each and every person would be saved. And this would be a universalist passage. I'm going to show you this word all, and I want you to turn there because I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. I want to thank A.W. Pink for originally pointing this out to me. Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. I want you to see this word all, and I love how the Bible interprets itself because this is so, it's just so helpful. Starting in verse 5, here's what it says. And again, we're talking about when it says bringing salvation for all people, does that mean each and every person that's ever lived, therefore everybody's going to be saved? Or does it mean all without distinction? Remember, we were just talking about old men, young men, old women, young women, slaves. So you have types of people there. And we're going to argue here that this means all without distinction. Jesus brings salvation for all people, all types of people, not just the Jew, but everyone. Okay, look at verse 5 in Matthew chapter 3. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of, about the Jordan were going about to him. Okay, so we see the word all. Jerusalem. So all J Jerusalem, th this seems to say that every single person in Jerusalem is coming out to John the Baptist. And everybody in the region and everybody in the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now, if, if all means all, and that means each and every, what this passage is saying is that everybody in the city of Jerusalem and everybody in the region of Judea, every single person was coming out to John the Baptist. But then the Bible clarifies, look at verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to the baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the all that's being referenced with Jerusalem and Judea and all the region about the Jordan is not talking about each and every because only some of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming out to Jerusalem to be baptized by John the Baptist. All in this context and all in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 mean all without distinction. This is not a passage saying that each and every person will be saved. It's not a universalist passage. But each and every type of person will be saved by Jesus without distinction. All did not mean each and every. It meant all without distinction. So for all people, this isn't universalism. Anyone who is saved is only saved by the grace of God. And that is universally true. And here's what's so great in this context and in our context today. There are some people think that because of their station in life, maybe there's no Christians in their background. Maybe they come, maybe they're the wrong color of skin, they think. Or they uh, come from a, a pagan background. Do they come, we have somebody in our church that grew up in a new age, new age household. So is the grace of God for them? Is Jesus powerful enough to save them as well? And what this text is boldly declaring is that he brings salvation for all people. And if you're a person, you're not beyond the grace of God. And what's universally true is you will only be saved by the grace of Jesus and not by anyone or anything else. Amen. That is universally true. So when we see this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The question has to be asked, are you saved? If you are saved, you have been saved by the grace of God, not by the work of your hands. We just sang about it. And I want you to see what grace does, because this is so powerful. What the grace of God does for everyone that's saved. If you are a Christian, if you have repented of your sins, or repented of your sins and trust in Christ, 
If you have been born again from the inside out, grace begins to do something in you. It does something to you. It's like Paul Washer said, as surely as you can't get hit by a Mack truck and stay the same, (laughs) you're going to be dead. Your guts are going to be out all over the road. You get hit by the grace of God, you cannot be the same. And if you're the exact same person the day after you claim to be a Christian or you pray a prayer and there's no difference whatsoever, you've not been hit by the Mack truck. Because the grace of God does not leave you the same. Grace does something. Look at verse 11. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present, present age. Grace brings salvation, and then it does something after salvation in the life of the believer. In other words, grace is not something that gets you in the front door of the Christian faith. Yeah, God's gracious. Praise God, he's gracious. And then it's up to our hard work. You know, God helps those who help themselves, after all. And you go out and you get busy and you start doing religious stuff and you start doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do and you stop doing all the bad stuff. No, no, no. Grace doesn't just get you in that door. Grace trains us. It's the training regiment. And when you think about training, I immediately think about physical training. If I'm training for a running event or if I'm training to do something, I'm going to go out and I'm going to run. I'm going to train physically. You don't just wake up one morning and think, you know, I'm going to go run, uh, you know, 10 miles. I'm going to go run. And just after sitting on the couch for a year, uh, eating donuts and watching, you know, hunting public, you don't just get out and go run. You have to train physically if you're going to be physically fit. The word training applies spiritually as well. And this is what, what the Bible says grace does. It trains us spiritually. If you want to grow in your Christian walk, you need the grace of God. It trains us to reject some stuff, and it trains us to live out some stuff. We see that right in verse 12 again. It trains us to reject, that's renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then it trains us to live out some stuff. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So first, it trains us to reject some stuff. Ungodliness and worldly passions. This is what God's grace does. Now, All the grace naysayers, you start talking about the grace of God, and inevitably you bump into some people who say, you know, you got to be careful with that grace stuff. You know, grace is good, yes, but you got to know you can't abuse that grace. It's, yeah, grace, but you get to work. Don't rely totally on the grace of God. Get busy spiritually. And there's a little bit, a shred of truth in that kind of opposition. But I think we need to be challenged to see that God's grace does not enable sin. It has restraining power. And if you have sin in your life, ungodliness right now that you're dealing with, if you have some worldly passions that you're dealing with that need to be restrained and bridled, we've been talking about this as we've been talking about self-control, then the grace of God is here for you today. And you need to chew it. You need to marvel at it. You need to look at it again. You need to consider it again because it has restraining power. It helps you break the power and the bondage of sin in your life. That's what God's grace does. It trains us. That's our training regimen. It helps us to renounce sin. What sin is in your life? As you think about the grace of God in your life, the Holy Spirit begins to work and it helps you to renounce that. Okay, am I living in a way that would violate the commandments of God? Because Jesus says, after all, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We're not saved by commandments. But we sure want to obey the commandments. He's our king, so we get our marching orders. We want to obey. So what area of ungodliness is in your life? And what area of worldly passions are in your life that you're just having so much struggle with? Well, the grace of God trains you to reject those. 
to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to say that thing. I'm not going to do that thing. No. And people who don't understand grace think grace, grace trains us in ungodliness and worldly passions. How many people have told you, well, grace, if, if you just think you're saved and you, you're eternally secure, then you're just going to go out and live ungodly lives and you're going to go and follow the ways of the world and you're going to walk in worldly passions. That's not the case. We're going to see that again here in just a little bit. When we consider the grace of God, it's like our appetites get changed and it's like that worldly passion is gross. That's disgusting and I don't want any part of it anymore. No thanks. But that's not all. It helps us not just to the negative, it trains us to the positive. It doesn't just help us to reject sin, it also helps us to live. Helps us to live. Christian life is about learning to die to self, but it's also learning how to live life. And you can live life by the grace of God. Live, it says, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Live, self-controlled. Now, the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And we see now that the grace of God and the Spirit of God are in cahoots together, helping us live self-controlled lives. The work of the Holy Spirit is intimately tied into the grace of God. Because the Holy Spirit is always reminding us of the work of Jesus. That's what John chapter 16 says. And Jesus is saying, hey, the Comforter is going to come in chapter 14 and 16, promising the Holy Spirit and saying, hey, listen, it's better that I go away than the Holy Spirit comes. And, you know, if I was there, I'd be like, no, 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 Jesus, you got this all wrong. It's better if you just stay here with us. He's like, no, 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 it's better that the Holy Spirit come, that I go away. And the Holy Spirit comes in John 16, 12 through 15, and we're told explicitly what the Holy Spirit will do. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and deliver it over to you. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. The Holy Spirit will turn our attention not to himself. That's why the Holy Spirit is, is called by some theologians as the quiet member of the Trinity or silent. Is it silent? Pastors in the room, silent member? Shy, the shy member of the Trinity. The shy member of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit is always turning us. And, and where Jesus is being magnified and thought about and dwelled on and reveled and followed, rest assured, the Holy Spirit is at work. And where the Holy Spirit is just the only one being talked about. And it's the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Rah! <laughs> Guess that's kind of funny. You're welcome, kids, or whoever was left. Where the Spirit's at work, Jesus is being glorified. When it's only the Holy Spirit being talked about, you're, you're, you've got to be recognizing, wait, wait a minute, something is off here when we're focusing on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that's bringing us to Jesus or reminding us about Him. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit focuses our eyes, to use that metaphor again of the binoculars, focuses our eyes on Jesus and takes that blurriness away and it brings our vision to him. As we look at him, we're changed from the inside out. This is how the grace of God works. The Holy Spirit focuses and turns us yet again to Jesus. And that's why, brothers and sisters, any pastor can tell you or anybody that's worked in, in bereavement or any kind of like situations where life and death, you're sitting with somebody in hospice, you start talking to somebody who's forgotten almost everything. But you start talking to them about, about Jesus. And the songs that they learned when they were a little boy or a little girl, the Bible verses that they memorized, when you start talking to them and ask them to tell you their testimony, they haven't forgot that. And that's heard over, you can hear those stories over and over and over again, that the only thing they can talk about with clarity is Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't let us go, even when our mind goes. That's the grace of God at work. 
The grace of God helps us to live upright, godly lives right now in this present age. The grace of God does not enable sin. The grace of God enables obedience. Obedience. And we have all these commandments that come to us in Titus chapter 2 or in the scriptures. And we bump into these commandments. How do we obey them? Is it by gritting our teeth? Is it by trying to justify ourselves? Or is it through the grace of God? How do we live this stuff out? What do we need? We need God's grace. Uh, 30 years from now, if God gives you 30 more years, you're going to be more aware 30 years from now than you are right now of God's grace in your life. You're going to be more aware of your need for the grace of God in your life than you are right now. I promise you, in 30 years, you're not going to say, I need God's grace less now than I did 30 years ago. Your life is going to be a testimony of his faithfulness to you. Your life right now is a testimony of his faithfulness to you. In verse 13, we're told that we wait for the one who brings us grace. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There his name is specifically, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This also is a connection to the deity of Christ. Our great God, Jesus, is God. He's not partially God. He's not somewhat God. He is God in the flesh. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are at work in our lives, saving us. And we are waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait. The Christian life is one of living and waiting. It's interesting because living and waiting are in two verses back to back. We live upright, godly lives in this present age with self-control, and we wait. We live and we wait. And this is a unique thing about the Christian life. We live to see God's glory spread throughout every nook and cranny of this world. And we also wait for the return of our King. We live and we wait. It's a paradox that's pretty glorious. The Christian life is like this. We, we live godly lives in the present age. We live productive lives in this present age. We don't live lives of, of consummation where we just consume, 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 consume. We produce you want to know the difference between, by the way, somebody that's depressed and somebody that's uh, continually down? It's usually somebody that's consumed, 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 not producing, producing, producing. God calls us to live productive lives, not lives of consumption. And to live lives of waiting. Waiting can be so hard, can it not? Like when you were a kid, I remember when I was a kid, my dad remembered this, waiting for a baseball game. I remember I would be ready for my baseball games. At like, you know, I'd be pretending I'm Ozzie Smith. And uh, I would be dressed for my game at 6 o'clock at night at like 8 in the morning. Remember that? All day long. Just straight. And I would just wait. And I remember that my parents would say, like, how much longer? And they would say, something like 45 minutes. I remember thinking how long 45 minutes felt. You know, like 45 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Will it ever come? You know, waiting is just this discipline that you just, I mean, you have to grow into over the years. And, and you know, waiting still is a little painful, isn't it? If you just got to wait for whatever's next, just sitting around waiting. Well, the Christian life is one of production and of waiting. We have this tension that we live in of wanting to see the kingdom of God manifested in front of us, wanting to bring good around us by the power of God, 
and also waiting for Jesus to come. And when he, when he comes, and as we wait for the return of Christ, we know and long and know that heaven is going to be coming with him. When Jesus comes back, resurrection is ours. We, give, we live godly and expectant lives knowing that he's going to come back. Most likely, most likely, newsflash, most likely Jesus won't come in our lifetime. I know every generation in here has been told Jesus is coming in your lifetime. I mean, every youth conference I ever went to, Jesus is coming in your lifetime. You look back and think, well, now things are different? Maybe. Most likely, though, Jesus will not return in our lifetime. So we're going to wait for the appearing of the Lord, but here's the cool thing. If he doesn't come back in our lifetime, when he comes back, we'll be with him. We will be with him. We're going to be there. We're either going to witness it or we're going to be there with him. And we're going to be in his army. And it's going to be a return of conquest. And he's going to take over whatever else may not be taken over. Because he, as we know, his enemies are being put under his feet as we speak. And we anticipate his appearing either way. We long for his return. We're either going to be there or we're going to see it. And why do we long for Jesus so much? Why do the Christians, why do we long to see Jesus so much? Why is it that inside of us, when we talk about his return, or talking about being with him, or going to see him one day, why do we long for that so much? And if you don't long for it, just please, I, I mean, whenever we, we've talked about this, Jordan and I have, like, you know, when you're a kid, you, you hear, like, stories of rapture, and it's, like, the most terrifying thing ever, you know? Like, you know, walking around thinking, like, can't find my parents, Oh. Man, it happened. The eternal state's going to be amazing. It's going to be, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no eye, something has conceived, mind has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Eternity is going to be physical. It's not going to be just spiritual. It's not going to be like smoky, care bearish. It's going to be real. There'll be dirt that we can stand on. There'll be work to do. Jesus won't mess around. The scene at the end of Chronicles of Narnia, do you remember if you saw the movie? Remember the scene when Aslan comes to fight the white witch? And it's a bite, just one bite. I wish they showed it where he just bit off her head. It'd be awesome. Just see her head explode. One bite. It wasn't a battle. Instant conquest. No one can stand before the king and live. His enemies will be vanquished. And we long for it. We wait for it and we know it's coming. That's why we're evangelistic. That's why we want to tell people, bow your knee now. Everyone will bow their knee. It's a question of whether they're going to bow their knee now or bow before it's too late. Why do we long for Jesus so much? Look at verse 14. 13, let me read it again so you get the context of verse 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our glory, of, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice how the Christian, by grace, is trained in righteousness and longs for the appearance of Jesus our Savior. He redeemed us. 
And for those who would make that claim we were talking about earlier, well, grace, eternal security, assurance of your salvation, these things lead people into sin and rebellion and licentious living. Somebody's going to pray the prayer and put their salvation card in their back pocket, and they're going to go out and they're going to party, and they're going to sleep around, and they're going to do whatever they need to do to just fill their lusts and their passions. But this passage tells us that we long, and we can take people to this passage and say, no, look what grace does. It makes us long for the returning of our king because he gave himself for us. He redeemed us. Christians love Jesus. He gave himself for us. Substitution, died in our place. The reason you live is because Christ Jesus died for you. He redeemed us. He pulled us up out of our Egypt of slavery and sin and lawlessness and said, let me take those chains. I'll break them. He sets us free. We used to be lawless, not anymore. He did this all to purify for himself, a people for his own possession. We belong to our master and king, Jesus. We're zealous to work for him. It says, zealous for good works. Zeal, passion, I want to work for the king. We're zealous to work for him. We live for the king. We work for a good master. He brought us to the father. We have a heavenly father. We're empowered with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work in you. It's almost like it needs to be said, watch out world, the people of God are coming and they're coming with the kingdom of God. The Great Commission is a commission of global conquest. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The nations, teach the nations. United States, you need to know. People need to be baptized. You need to be knowing the, the ways of God. We want to teach them to observe all that God has commanded. We won't stop until the knowledge of the glory of God fills every nook and cranny of this earth. Old men, old women, young women, young men, slaves, all obey the Lord Jesus Christ and long for his returning. And we obey him because of his eternal, eternal grace that has been freely given to us. Each and every Christian that has been saved is eternally indebted to their master Jesus. In verse 15, we end with a charge to the churchmen, a charge to Titus and every single pastor. And listen, I know that not everybody here is going to be at our church forever. I hope by God's grace I die being a part of this church family. I want to raise our kids here. I want to be here as long as the Lord would have us. I know that many of us, some of you are going to move away. Uh, some of you are going to end up being in other churches, other assemblies. But I want you to hear this charge to Titus. And I want you to hear this today and remember this. You do not need to be at a church where the ministers of God's word will not speak God's word clearly and authoritatively. If you go to a church and that pastor is tiptoeing around, if he is a limp-wristed guy that will not declare the truth, if he's a woman, if it's a woman up there preaching, get up and walk out. I want you to hear this. Titus chapter 2, verse 15, a charge to the churchmen. Here's what Paul says to Titus through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's a charge to Titus and a charge to every churchman around this globe. Titus and me 
and every preacher behind this pulpit and every pulpit throughout this area and this world need to declare these things. They're not suggestions. This passage is an easy passage to not declare. Is it not, Titus chapter 2? Isn't it easy to tiptoe around the things you know are going to be controversial to the world? Or even controversial to the people of God? How many times have you heard, well, don't, in the, in the church, don't preach the controversial stuff that, that people disagree on. Like, that doesn't keep people fighting. Like, today, we talked about, in talking about the word all, I hope you know this, that's a big debate in churches. Like, well, don't talk about the atonement. Is it general or is it, is it definite? It's definite, by the way. And don't do this, you know, don't talk about men and women and, uh, don't do that. And Paul is telling Titus, declare these things. You wonder why I get fired up or other preachers get fired up and excited. It's because passages like this, declare them. They're not suggestions. Titus is to declare all these things. Just say, hey, if, if, you, if it feels good, old guys, live like this. If it feels good to you, young guys, you know, here's a few things that you can try in the repertoire of living as a young man. Just, just try to live self-controlled lives. You know, ladies, older and younger, you know, just you be you, girl. Like, but maybe if you want, if that's not working out, you know, try some of these suggestions here. That's not how Titus rolled into Crete. He came with authority. And he came declaring the truth, the very word of God. The Bible has no quarter for tiptoeing churchmen. Declare these things or get out, in other words. And I want you to hear this because we live in a day where preachers will not declare God's word. They want to be liked. This is a temptation that I have. To be liked by as many people as possible. To have the world think much of you. Oh, the intellect. Oh, yes. Oh. And here it is right here. Don't apologize for God's word, Titus. Declare it. Exhort and rebuke, he says. Exhort and rebuke. That's what you're to do. Authority is found in God's word. If God has spoken, the job of the churchman is to say, hear what God has said, and then live it out. Obey. Don't, don't ask questions. Don't be like, well, I, maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't like that. I'll obey here, but I'm not going to obey here. And, and then he tells them, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. This is a command to be annoying. Titus, don't let anyone disregard you. Nobody. Well, how can he control that? Because there's going to be some people that just say, like, no, I don't want to hear what God has to say. I don't want to hear. Titus' responsibility and his obligation and the job of every single pastor is to say, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has to say. This is how God has called us to live. And I, you might want to close your eyes, but I'm going to be there and I'm going to be pulling your, I'm going to be, do this, Dad. Close your eyes. Go like this. I don't want to look at God's word. No, no, no. Now, now let go a little bit. Okay. No, no. Listen to what God has to say. Don't let anybody disregard you. Nobody. Declare these things. And don't let anybody let you not declare these things. You're going to be sounding the alarm. Declaring from this side to this side. To north and south, east and west. Thus saith the Lord. Declare these things with all authority. And rebuke with all authority. 
Like, we need rebuke, guys. I need it, and you need it. And if we don't hear it from Titus, if we don't hear it from the churchmen, where are we going to get rebuke? We're just going to get affirmation all the way to hell. Like, the road to hell is paved with affirmation. This is a command to be annoying. (laughs) Don't let anyone disregard you. Titus must do all of this over and over. This is his life work. For the rest of your life, Titus, for all proclaimers of God's word, this is what God says. What God says goes. Let me tell you about God's grace. You can't disregard this. Turn your eyes and your ears to God's word. Wake up. Today is the day of salvation. This is the work of every single pastor. Titus 2 is a glorious chapter. There are a ton of things there. It's endless. We scratched the surface. That's all we ever do when we study God's Word. That's all we ever do is scratch the surface. One time Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked after preaching 14 years through the book of Romans, don't you think you saw more than what was actually there? And he said, you know, there's going to be a day we stand before the Lord and in eternity we'll realize how much I missed. How much I missed. There is a whole lot of glory in this chapter. There's not much to do as we finish this chapter. There's not much to do other than this. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help you marvel at God's grace. Just to marvel. Just to stand in awe that God has been gracious. And I don't want you to disregard that. I don't want to let you disregard the grace of God. If you don't know Jesus here today, I don't want you walking out these doors without repenting your sins and trusting in Jesus right now. You're going to bow a knee. I said this 20 minutes ago. You're going to bow a knee. It's either going to be now or when it's too late. And so today, I want you to consider the grace of God. As we sing songs of grace, I told you in my prayer... I'm aware of my need for grace today. And God has been so kind to me to give it every day. I want you to sing songs and I want you to thank you for God's, I want you to thank him for God's grace. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you. I want you to find gratitude. It's a deep well. It's an eternal well. It's a well that will never run dry. If you need gratitude, run to the well that is the grace of God. Find joy there. Think about the fact that he's redeemed you. That he's pulled you up out of the sin that you were living in. That he's forgiven you of all your sins. That he's cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. Think about the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about the fact that you belong to the God of the universe who loves you and has you in the palm of his hand. And then, what are we going to do? We're going to obey. Okay. Okay, Lord, we're going to obey you. You've been gracious. How can I not? Let's pray. Lord, I'm bound to insist on these things. I'm bound to insist. And so, God, I know that I did that in a feeble manner, in a way that uh, falls, falls just woefully short. So, Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you come and you, you're already here. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd work perfectly in the life of each person. Each person comes here with different needs today. 
And I pray that they would just think about your grace and be changed, be transformed. Help us to find gratitude today, find joy today. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you, the power for their salvation is not in themselves. They can't. They can't get saved on their own. They're hopeless. And their only hope is that you have an arm that's strong enough to save. Their only hope is that Jesus came to save sinners. Their only hope is that you would open their eyes today. And God, I pray that they would bow their knee, say that I'm sorry for living my way. I repent and trust in you today, Jesus. And that they would be saved. It's going to be our joy to sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.